0: You're listening to Voices of Family, a monthly podcast series from the BC Council for Families. Each month, we bring you thought-provoking discussions with notable figures and frontline workers in the family service community. Voices of Family takes you inside family services to hear what's new and on the horizon, making life better for BC families. Welcome back to part two of our Voices of Family podcast series. We are joining program coordinator Pilaro Natra as she talks with Dr. Susan Gamash about the challenges that families face when going through separation, divorce, and remarriage.
1: Okay, so we have talked about the news to parents and the and the parents in general, but what about the children? They are in the middle of all this. So what are the other common challenges that children face uh, when new Families or step families are being created? Well, again,
0: the, the older the child, the more complicated it is. You know, say if you think of a six-month-old baby, they're really going to be oblivious to a lot of what's going on. They will have their primary attachments with mom and dad, and so as long as those attachments are still respected and secure. I mean, I realize with very young children, it's difficult to set up parenting schedules that support that um, but when when there's a new partner coming in, um, the baby is not really that tuned into all of the details of what that means. The older children get, the more they are tremendously tuned in to the details of what that means. And so, um, uh, it's important that, that children have the um, uh, age-appropriate understanding of their parents that we can't expect a 16 year old to indiscriminately accept a new step parent. Um, we ask them to say no to drugs, no to um, drinking, um, and they're going to say no to things that the family asks of them if those demands don't respect their own timing you know teenagers are generally hardly in the market for their own parents let alone new parents and so um, like we were saying before the term blended doesn't really work for teenagers because their job at that time is to separate from the family to you know they still love their family they're still a part of the family but their goal is to their developmental goal is to create a sense of independence to create their own sense of identity and so we can't ask them to then sort of act like a two-year-old in terms of being very tremendously interested in the family and the new couple and being around a lot. It's it's counter... It goes against their developmental trajectory. Um, one of the other things that happens for children when step families is formed is that their birth order may change. So they may go from being, say, the youngest of two to the middle of four. And that is... That is quite a difficult transition for children, because we in families treat children in different um, positions in different ways. You know, we have ways of treating oldest that give them more responsibility, that rewards maturity. We have ways of treating youngest that rewards creativity and cuteness and entertaining us and those kinds of things. And so when an oldest suddenly is no longer an oldest or a youngest is is all of a sudden not a, a youngest, This is a fundamental change in their role in the family. And again, communication is the key. You know, parents being able to be tuned in with their children, noticing when they look confused or out of sorts, being able to talk with them about what's going on. Um, I'm a big advocate of a very uh, well-published book called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and How to Listen So Kids Will Talk that... um, it's very useful for parents trying to get engage in emotional conversations with children or conversations about how children are feeling without asking questions um, because questions at that point can be sometimes kind of scary Um, but it's a wonderful resource for parents to get into the mode of having sort of debriefing conversations with their children about what's happening in the family so that they have a chance to talk about what it's like to go from being the youngest to the middle of four, going from the oldest to being, you know, younger than two others. And so uh, it's very important for parents to stay tuned in with their children and just keep the conversation going.
1: Um, Sometimes also there's a new baby yeah, coming in. Yeah, and a so new that Creates another
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of relationship, mm-hmm. so a new baby is generally seen um, as a very positive thing by children. It's seen as sort of a pro-family, pro-children event. Um, so even teenage boys are often, you know, happy to see that there's uh, a new baby, even if they're not going to be around to babysit all that much. Um, on the other hand, for the parent in the other household. A new baby can sometimes be experienced as kind of threatening because it is something special that the other household now has. And if the children are younger and they're very excited about the baby, then it can be seen to, seen as a way that the other spouse cannot compete or cannot replicate that. Um, so again, you know, communicating about what children are experiencing and the different changes that come through the family is, is really the key to giving everybody a place that they can feel a sense of belonging.
1: If you had to point to just one thing that step-families could do to make their family life easier and smoother, what that would be? Like you talked about communication. Is there anything else that you...
0: Well, communication certainly would be the center because no matter what happens, it's important that kids be able to um, uh, talk about what's going on. Um, I mean, you just can't have, you know, two children and another adult move into your house without there being a whole lot of things to talk about, about how that's going to happen. Um, I think, too, that uh, people can now inform themselves. They can read, you know, some of the publications that BC Council for Families has. Um, there's also a wonderful website. Um, if you Google the Step Family Association of America, um, it will bring you to a website that is the National Center for um, Information on step families. Mm-hmm. So I always forget yeah. the letters, so Absolutely. I get that wrong. Um, so reading helps people start thinking about their family group in a way that's probably more accurate, given the ages of the children and the number of people involved. Also, there are, uh, if there's an opportunity to get together with other step parents and just start talking about what it's like, um, that's very helpful. I know at times there have been support groups in the Lower Mainland. I don't know if there are still, um, but it's very helpful. And step family relationships can be very different depending on how old the children are. So it's especially helpful if you can talk with people who have similar experiences to yours, say, integrating a stepmother into a household with um, teenagers, or a stepfather into a household with very young children. Um, Being able to match a little bit in terms of the ages of children is a useful um,
1: piece, otherwise the experiences can be a little bit different. Susan, on your website you make the following statements. Um, As a marriage and family therapist, it is my responsibility to do everything in my power to help marriages stay together and to resolve the problems of today. Separation and divorce are risky activities for family no matter how well the transition is managed. At the same time, I recognize that with 40% of marriages ending by choice, some marriages indeed will end despite our best efforts. In these cases, it is my professional responsibility to support and educate my clients to hold fast to the highest possible aspirations for a safe, emotionally intelligent, and informed transition for the family, particularly for the children. Why is it crucial for divorcing parents to hold fast to the highest aspirations? And can you tell us more about what you feel those aspirations should be?
0: Well, when an intimate relationship comes to an end... um, There's generally a period of fairly intense distress by one or both spouses. The person who makes the decision to end the marriage has had a lot of time to think about their feelings and to get ready to make their announcement. The person who is receiving the decision then of goes into catch-up mode and um, can often be in a very, very different emotional place. So one person is ready to sell the house, and the other person can't even imagine what tomorrow is going to look like. So um, often as people are moving through the divorce, these different emotional places can make every step of the way. Um, seem very different, and um, there's many opportunities for us to um, experience hurt or anger or fear and forget that, actually, we chose that person as our partner, we probably had some wonderful times with them, Um, and that they probably are a decent parent, they probably love their children, and most of the time there's some nostalgia or some sadness for the person who made the decision to end the marriage so the temptation is to go into kind of black and white thinking that the other person is you know a hundred percent wrong bad um mean um and that it's all their fault And we know that relationships require two people to be created. And everybody has made a contribution to the relationship, not the same contributions a lot of the time, but just by who we are in the world, what our desires are, the things we're interested in, the things we're not interested in, we contribute to an environment. And so holding on to your highest aspirations is that... Even though we might, a person might be feeling very sad or angry or wishing the other person would just fall off the face of the earth, that we can still at the same time know that they love the children, that they're a decent human being in the world, that for the most part, we're going to get through this and be okay on the other side. Um, It's just in the dark moments, it's easy to let that slide and just really be taken over by those things. And, And it's gonna happen some of the time. I'm not suggesting that people can go through these transitions without ever visiting those places of tremendous darkness or despair. At the same time, we know that divorce is a risk factor. It's not a death sentence for people. And that a lot of times with appropriate support, um, people can actually come through these experiences and, and thrive. I mean, not only uh, survive, but thrive. And, you know, I, I still you know, wouldn't wish divorce on people as a way to you know, self-actualize or something. Um, and at the same time, when we realize that um, 40% of Canadian marriages will end before their 30th anniversary, um, we know that people can come through the other side and we all live such long lives now that um, often there's still another twenty years of, of good quality living um, that um, that people can enjoy in ways they might not ever have anticipated. So I think the key is being able to get the kind of support and help that you need. Um, so that while the transition might be unwanted and painful and devastating at the time, that it doesn't define the rest of your life.
1: Much of the focus of your practice is on helping divorcing families to stay out of the court system to solve their difference through mediation and negotiation. Can you outline for us what you feel are the most important things to keep in mind in order to keep the relationship between divorcing um, divorcing spouses cordial amicable? Um,
0: Well, it's interesting that um, um, there are so many of us now trying to work in modalities that help people stay out of court. Um, In addition to mediation, we now have collaborative practice or collaborative divorce. Um, So we really have quite a broad range of possibilities. in the first instance, there is what we call the traditional dispute resolution continuum, which includes, you know, doing it yourself, using mediation, now using collaborative law or collaborative divorce is new, or then um, litigation. That's kind of the old one, but we now have an, a new dispute resolution continuum, um, given that there are several ways now that the lawyers themselves can stay out of court that they can partner with family therapists in many different ways the collaborative divorce model has provided us with at least two new roles that therapists can take so depending on the kinds of challenges that each family has we can custom fit a team that responds to what they need and when they need it it's kind of like a we have a much bigger toolbox now and All families are different, so we wouldn't expect the same set of tools to be the right ones for every family. But we do now have a very, very wide range of tools to use, and um, that really helps people to um, hold on to their highest aspirations, Mm -hmm. as we were talking about in the previous question. So um, in order for people to um, keep their co-parenting relationship sort of on the high side, as I would call it. Um, I think it is important to remember that divorce is a transition. It's not the end of the world. Even if a person, excuse me, has been the receiver of a decision to separate, that when there are young children, the children's interests are absolutely served by working out some kind of a cordial co-parenting relationship we know from the research literature on children that um, the experience of parental separation and divorce does increase the number of problems that children experience in general from a you know like 10,000 person sample Um, and at the same time um, the biggest factor in terms of influencing children Um, is actually being exposed to prolonged conflict of their parents. Um, We know that children are impacted by parental conflict in a number of ways. Um, The strongest one actually being that, given that children experience themselves as half-mom and half-dad, when they're in prolonged conflict from mom and dad, it puts them in conflict with themselves, in that they have to somehow sort out how to be half-mom and half-dad. Um, there are other things that have an impact on children, too. For example, economic insufficiency. You know, um, money doesn't buy happiness, but poverty hurts. Um, but in terms of the social aspects or the relationship aspects, conflict between uh, separated parents is the greatest uh, factor for predicting children's outcome through separation and divorce. So that's a really important thing that we um, keep in mind. Um, Sometimes I ask parents when we're working on co-parenting relationships to keep in mind um, what they think the other spouse is experiencing. So say for example if if you're co-parenting with someone and they have to go out of town on business and then they ask to have some time with the children when they get back you know, to kind of deviate from the schedule. Um, imagine if you were in that position and for some reason you had to go away and now you haven't seen your children for too long. What would that be like? So the more we can keep imagining the legitimate concerns of the other person, um, the, and they do that for us, the less we have to argue about that because it's pretty straightforward. Um, also, if we keep it about what the children... Um, I hate to use the term children's best interest because I think that gets thrown around quite mm-hmm. a lot. But, um, I mean, we know that the buffers for children through separation or divorce are strong relationship with mum, strong relationship with dad, and being buffered from their conflict. You know, after 30 years from research, you know, this is what Joan Kelly, our reigning diva on um, child development research tells us, the literature actually says. So if we know that our children need to have strong relationships with both of us, then what do we need to do in order to facilitate that as much as possible? It's not really that difficult once we can put our emotions to the side a little bit, and also if both people are continually putting themselves in the other person's shoes, then, you know, parenting is something that most people do quite naturally, and we can get back to, um, you know, sane and intelligent, thoughtful decision-making in a separated family just as we did in our first marriage family.
1: What would be your advice for parent educators um, and family service providers who may not be experts in the area of step-family relationships when they are asked by parents for help or advice? Um, Well, if people really are not
0: familiar with step-families, either because, you know, they haven't experienced that personally or maybe it hasn't been a big part of their culture, um, then it's probably best to refer that person to somebody who who does have some understanding. Um, the the um, parent educator or family support worker could also start reading themselves. They could take, again, advantage of some of the publications that BC Council for Family has or take workshops themselves on... What does this mean in families when they move through these transitions of separation, divorce, and remarriage? Um, I think, too, it's important to encourage um, uh, the parents who are asking the questions to, you know, commend them for asking those questions and really encouraging them and helping them get to the right place to get the right answers. Um, it's I think people are more and more realizing that they need they need to learn some things in order to do step families well. And I think as a society, the more we can support that, the more the children will be able to grow up in homes that make sense, where they feel safe, and um, uh, they the children will have fewer of those sort of terrible outcomes that we see mm-hmm. either in the papers or you know, on the news when it's, it's awful. Um, the point of transition is our point of greatest power. And so the better we can do the transition, and the first few years after that, the better everything will be. One thing I haven't mentioned is that when step families, or families divorce rather, that it, it usually takes a full year for the family to have some kind of stability, because you need to meet each of the things that happen in a year. So the first Christmas, the first birthdays, the first Mother's Days, Father's Days, summer holidays, all of those firsts. And once you've been through it one time, then the second time around you will, be, you will know a lot more about what your family needs in order to get through them. In the stepfamily world, they suggest that it takes about two years for a step-family household to settle. Um, I think it could be faster with very young children, and it could be slower with older children. Um, But it's still a significant chunk of time Uh to just get used to what it means to be in a family that has such a different structure Um, because these are really, really big changes for everyone. Um, So I think the more people can read and inform themselves and know that there is good support for them out there, Um, the better it will be for everyone in
1: the long run. Susan, thank you so much. Um, It was really great talking to you today. Thank you, Boris. Thank you you very much. (laughs) That wraps it up for this episode of Voices of Family. Check
0: the BC Council for Families website next month for another episode on the latest in family services at www.bccf.ca. Thanks, and see you next time.